Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Hello. Uh, so, welcome all uh, to this talk. Uh, we're, we've been looking forward to this for a few weeks. Uh, my name is Ian Stewart, and I'll be one of the panelists, as well as uh, Kat, who will be presenting with the event with me. Uh, the first part, as per usual, will be a, a talk on by our excellent guest tonight uh, or today. Um, uh, it will be uh, followed by a questions and answer session. So, uh, philosopher and author uh, Dr. Stephen Hicks is a professor at Rockford University, Illinois. He is the executive director for the Centre for Entrepreneurship and senior scholar at the Atlas Society. He has published four books. Uh, translated into 16 different languages uh, in 2004 and expanded in 2011. He, he published Explaining Postmodernism, uh, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. Um, in, 2012, in 2010, he published Nietzsche and the Nazis, which, is, uh, which as well as is, explains in philosophical terms the nature in which such ideologies can confess or also provides an account of the unthinkable acts uh, against humanity that in part had led to the Second World War. Um, in 1994 and second edition in uh, 1998, he published The Art of Reasoning, uh, Readings for a Logical Analysis. Uh, he published Entrepreneurial Living in 2016, and he has also published in academic journals such as Business Ethics Quarterly, uh, Teaching Philosophy and Review of Metaphysics, as well as the Wall Street Journal, the Cato Unbound, and the Baltimore Sun. Uh, in 2010, he, he won his uh, University Excellence in Teaching Award. He is a visiting professor at business ethics at Georgetown University, Washington, D.C., and visiting fellow at the Social Philosophy of Policy Center in Bowling, Bowling Green, Ohio. He is a senior fellow at the Objectivist Center in New York and visiting professor at the University of Kazimierz the Great in Poland. Dr. Hicks' work on postmodernism seems to be more relevant and pertinent today, despite being written 17 years ago. It is uh, without question that he is a supporter and advocate for free speech. And with that, I'm proud to present to you Dr. Stephen Hicks. Hi, well, thanks for that gracious uh, introduction, Ian. And uh, a pleasure to be uh, invited to uh, across the ocean to a group of uh, uh, students focused on, strikes to me to be a foundational and obviously a highly controversial issue of, uh, of our time. I thought I would uh, frame our discussion and uh, the contemporary Q&A that I'm sure we will get into by uh, putting some historical framing on it because uh, uh, understanding the bigger, not only philosophical context, but the historical situation in which we find ourselves is always, always, uh, always important. So uh, with respect to free speech and censorship, most of us, I think, are familiar with what was a traditional battle between uh, liberty and authority, 
or free speech in particular, and then various forms of censorship as they came down over the course of the centuries. And in philosophical terms, the, the debate was always couched in terms of an authority principle that was hierarchical, that some people are better people, they know better, they are smarter, they are more moral than the vast run of people. And if we're going to have a society, then that smaller number of people uh, need to be in charge and to manage action, manage thought, and then that will then include managing the expression of, of, of thought. And so any, uh, any views that in their judgment are not fit for social consumption are to, be, are to be censored. So sometimes that would be for political reasons, sometimes for religious reasons, or whatever the issue, issue might be. Now, what we call the, the, the modern world, the last five or 600 years or so, a, a, a kind of liberalism has come to be kind of taken for granted by us in the late 20th century, early 21st century. But it's, uh, it's always worth remembering how fragile that has been, uh, how uh, hard fought the battles were over the last many centuries, every generation, vicious, knockdown, drag them out arguments over the principle of authority and, and, and liberty. Uh, 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 and, and then uh, to be able to replace this idea of a small group of people uh, authorized to tell the rest of us what we are allowed to say, think, and do to what we take to be kind of modern small L liberalism. And there, the, the authority over oneself devolves to the individual, right? It's my life, my mind, my action, and that when we are engaging with each other socially, that those should be the fundamental principles of, of, of social respect, that each of us is an individual who should be free and responsible for his or, or her own life. So we think of the major battles uh, uh, in the early days of science, so individuals like Galileo, who were challenging a higher authority. And the arguments were, were quite explicitly, you know, who are you scientists, uh, individuals who uh, have not been uh, uh, sanctioned by the appropriate institutions to upset the apple cart, so to speak, to say, we have the wisdom of the ages, we have these authorized institutions, we have higher authority that has sorted out the truth, and we can just a priori say anything that contradicts that is inappropriate. So it's precisely an issue of, are we going to rely on received authority by authorized institutions over the rest of us, or is it a matter of any individual who has evidence or who has an argument should be allowed to express that argument and the arguments that, uh, that uh, do not pass muster, we're going to set those aside uh, as, as, as weak. And so Galileo, for example, one of the things that's important about him is precisely uh, on, on these battles over science to say that every individual has the capacity of reasoning. Every individual with some training can look at the data, can follow a line of argument. And as we are rational individuals, each of us should be free uh, uh, on scientific matters to formulate our own judgment and the way that reasonable people are going to sort out what they're going to be believe is by force of demonstration, by force of argument. This idea of 
there being traditional hierarchical authorities that have a lock on the truth or even an epistemological authority over the rest of us, that needs to be set aside. So that's one zone of battle and where most of us are familiar with uh, the, the battles between uh, uh, emerging science, which requires this liberal cognitive realm and the traditional battles of authority. And if we think of the battles over uh, religion, right, again, a similar, that some special individuals have access to higher truth and only they, and they are cognitively better individuals, they are morally better individuals, and the rest of us should not be in a position to challenge those. And so we should accept sometimes on faith and sometimes uh, faith backed up by threat uh, uh, and suspend our own individual judgments to follow the higher authority. And what's important about uh, thinkers like John Milton and John Locke in the battles over religion in the 1600s is once again to say every individual has charge of his or her own mind. We're all capable of thinking for ourselves. We should be self-responsible agents on matters of religion. My soul is up to me and no one should have that authority over me. What we should do on matters of religion, if we really are interested in the truth or what is best is let people uh, formulate their own independent judgments. And then to the extent we're going to try to do religion socially, we will discuss it. We will uh, have to tolerate differences of opinion and differences of a practice. If those get too great, then we will just go our separate ways. Uh, but what we are not going to do on matters of religion is engage in any sort of coercion, certainly not overt political coercion, but even those softer uh, social coercions where we try to intimidate people and, 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 and use fear and guilt to get them not to think for them, to think for themselves. So we're familiar with those and uh, battles in those areas. And then of course, what happens is it becomes generalized. It's not just in science, it's not just in religion. If we're going to be genuine artists, we need as individuals to think for ourselves and be able to express ourselves. So artistic freedom comes to be important. If we're genuinely concerned with politics, every individual has the capacity to think and look at the data and the way socially we're going to do it. And it's going to be messy. And sometimes our feelings are going to be hurt, but we're going to have vigorous open arguments about everything politically. That's how democratic republics work. And then we're not going to coerce people. We're going to vote on the basis of that and, and tally things. So science, religion, art, politics, and so forth in all zero zones of lives, we generalize it. Individuals need to be autonomous self-responsible and, and, and free. Now that uh, came to be the dominant position as modernism uh, prevailed. Uh, and so the, the institutions of artistic freedom, scientific freedom, political freedom and so forth, and uh, uh, came to be at least in the Western part of the world. And then as the 20th century uh, 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 went along, came to become more, more global, global phenomena. Now, all of this became absolutely important for education and how we uh, conceive of ourselves as doing education. Uh, and again, the traditional model of there being a teacher or an, a textbook that has all of the answers and uh, you just listen to what the teacher says or you just memorize what is in the textbook and regurgitate it on an exam, that model came to be challenged. The idea again of, of modern liberal education is individuals need to learn to think for themselves and education 
always has to encourage individuals to think for themselves. Here is the data. Here's how you process the data. You can look at it this way. You can look at it that way. And you look at the arguments uh, on, on both sides and particularly on controversial, complicated issues. We know that we are preparing young people for a life full of complications and controversies, but their minds have to be trained in that intellectual toughness and, uh, and with the, the, the courage to be able to speak their own minds, the honesty to take criticism and be willing to change their minds. Uh, the only way that can happen is if you have uh, a social atmosphere, not of fear and censorship and authority, but we're going to be able to consider any idea, consider it on its own merits, and we're going to trust individuals to make their, make their own minds. So what we then have is rather than kind of a, some sort of a group-based or elite-based higher authority uh, is, a, is, a, is a democratization to the individual and empowering every individual to think, speak, and then uh, typically to act right, for, 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 for himself. Now, what has happened over the course of the last uh, century, as, uh, as many of us know who've been, been looking at the literature, is that we've had, a, a, again, a sea change in attitudes toward free speech and, and censorship. We're now in what uh, many of us call a, a postmodern intellectual era, and postmodernism is, uh, is uh, now, now simply not an academic uh, set of ideas, but is spreading out into other aspects of culture. We see it in some uh, political spheres, in some business spheres and artistic spheres, and uh, certainly uh, it's, it's poised to transform some aspects of education as well. But again, the set of principles are quite different, that rather than respecting individuals as individuals, what we find is an overarching concern for groups. And here the idea is that you're not fundamentally an individual, but rather you're a member of a group. But rather than, in contrast to some of those older traditional models that would want to organize groups hierarchically, right? There's these special groups at the top, and then there's a you know some sort of feudal hierarchy or caste system all the way down. Uh, instead, all of the groups are seen as being more or less equal. And what we need to do is manage society in a way. To, uh, to maintain or to return to or generate some sort of equality among all sorts of groups. So rather than authority or liberty being the overarching value, some sort of uh, uh, equality. Uh, now this is of course is the buzzword and equality means different things to different groups, but it's not liberty, it's not authority, uh, it is some sort of equality that is the dominating group of a principle that we need to, uh, to organize things in terms of. And then also, uh, it's no longer individuals that seem to be the operative unit, rather it is some sort of collectivized set of units. And so if we start to look at the world, including the, primarily the social world through this group equality lens, and there's a lot of philosophy and psychology and sociology behind that, that once again, leads to a transformation of our attitudes toward cognition and speech. And rather than saying, you know, individuals should be free to say whatever they want and think whatever they want, and ultimately we're going to trust individual judgment. Instead, what we have is a great push to, uh, to manage language in a group egalitarian way. And that then uh, amounts to another kind of censorship, but it's not a kind of censorship that is the uh, kind of the traditional pre-modern 
or religious conservative or whatever kind of labels that you want to. Rather, it seems to be coming from a different part of a political spectrum, uh, uh, first and foremost in the last two generations or so from segments of the left, in some cases, the pretty far left that also see themselves as, uh, as in tension with modern liberal society. So with that, by, uh, by means of a general framing, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of history, I would like to uh, welcome any questions you have about our contemporary debates. That was very, very interesting, actually. I learned quite a lot there. Um, Thank you. Thanks. So my first question, it's um, actually one that I was considering last night when I was looking into postmodernism more. And it sort of works alongside a lot of the things you were discussing in terms of organisations and people organised into groups and following ideologies. And I'm wondering if you think postmodernism is causing any sort of issues with university campuses or secondary school education at all. Yes, well, I think definitely. Uh, so when I was uh, your age, uh, that was, looks like most of you are in your 20s, right, or, or so, uh, postmodernism was starting to be a thing. So the you know, famous names were Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, uh, in terms of my philosophical training, Richard Rorty, a uh, former analytic philosopher who became increasingly uh, pragmatic and, uh, and postmodernist were the, were the big names. And it was a high-powered intellectual movement inside universities. But then what did happen was, uh, because of the stature of those individuals, and they, they were all brilliant, well-educated men, uh, is they succeeded in training a large number of graduate students who then went on to intellectual life and, and, and uh, uh, particularly in, in universities and in some prominent cultural spheres. And so what you then started to see in the 1990s and on into the early 2000s was uh, a spread of uh, postmodern ideas into literature departments, into uh, law schools and critical legal uh, studies into historiography and, and, uh, and some of the special studies, ethnic studies, women's studies, and, and so forth, came to have a much higher percentage of kind of skeptical, relativized, collectivized thinking being dominant. And you started to see explicit pushbacks against traditional liberal education. Uh, it was in the 1990s, especially, that you started to see the idea of speech codes explicitly. There's a whole list of words that you just cannot say. Here's a whole list of, uh, of, of books that we're not going to uh, uh, put on the, on, the, on the curriculum anymore. We're going to expunge them from the, from the curriculum. Now, all of that, at least as far as I could tell, in the 1990s and early 2000s was still happening in higher education. But what also was happening was a recognition by the postmodern theorists was that if we want to have a broader social impact, we, uh, we do need to get out into the schools, K through 12 education, as we call it here in North America. Uh, but for that, first, we're going to need to retrain the teachers because right now, most teachers uh, you know, are taught, uh, you know, judge people by the content of their characters, treat people as individuals, tell them very optimistically that they can become anything that they want and pursue their dreams. But if you have a much more jaded, group-oriented, cynical, oppression, victim understanding, uh, you know, the current generation of teachers need to be retrained. So uh, when I started looking at this literature 
uh, in terms of in philosophy of education and what was going on in the ed schools in, for me, it was in the late 1990s and then on into the first uh, decade of the, of the 2000s, you could see uh, a significant number of, of schools of education and the battles were joined then. To a significant extent, many uh, schools of education have signed on to applied postmodernism now. You see it in their mission statements and in some cases overt declarations that uh, teachers need to, or teacher candidates need to sign before they can be certified as, as teachers. So to the extent that that has happened, we're now into the next generation and we see uh, 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 curricula and reading lists being revised uh, across, across North America. And I know it's a, an international phenomenon now. That's uh, very interesting, Stephen. Thank you very much. So your question sort of relates to um, the, the quality of education amid uh, postmodern, uh, would you say, infiltration of postmodernism? into curricula. Uh, well, I was thinking about, I'm on, I'm on the STEM field, I'm in the biomedical sciences field, which is largely uh, based on em empirical data, very much uh, associated, you know, you can't have any a priori approaches. Uh, you know, it's, it's very much based on data and um, mm -hmm. I would say an optimism that we are able to, to uh, deal with data and science and just wondering how do you feel this is affecting scientific education and getting away from the sort of humanities and and that kind of uh, more subjective realms yeah yeah that's a that, that's a great question um so if if crudely we divide the intellectual world into the uh, the arts and the humanities and then the social sciences and then uh, what we call the hard sciences uh, you know, all of them were modern, liberal, uh, individualistic disciplines dominantly for the last two centuries or so. Uh, and so the spread of postmodernism did start with the softest sciences. So if you're going to be skeptical and relativistic and say that everything is just narratives and no one's the truth and we're all products of our time, it is easiest to make that kind of case uh, in, in literature uh, where you know, it, it's harder to make a case that, that there's one true interpretation of some literary text uh, and, and so forth, or in the arts where we're uh, encouraging people to do their own thing and be subjective in, in various ways as well. So it was first in the arts and the humanities that we found postmodernist themes uh, start to, uh, to become prominent. But uh, the social sciences and the hard sciences as kind of inheritors of enlightenment values, you know, objectivity, the power of, uh, of observation and experiment and mathematics and logic and so forth, those were the ones that most institutionalized liberal uh, uh, scientific values. And they are the ones that are the latest now uh, in being attacked by, by postmodernists. But we, uh, it's early stages yet, but you do see the signs that the postmodernists having had significant success in uh, humanities disciplines and significant success then in social sciences now turning their eyes on, on, on the hard sciences. So in medical studies, for example, uh, you know, there, there are, are some explicit attacks regularly published now in scholarly journals 
against the whole idea of evidence-based medicine. And that's a, that is a core postmodern theme. You know, the idea that there is such a thing as evidence that can be ascertained objectively, and that, that should be our baseline against which we test all hypotheses and so forth, that is, uh, that is, that is being attacked. Uh, because if we're not going to base our medical procedures on evidence, then what are we going to base our medical procedures on? And then the idea is that we will substitute various other, other, other values. Or if we're not going to say that uh, fundamentally it's the individual scientist who needs to have the courage of his or her conviction to challenge authority, to challenge higher authority, to be an outlier with respect even to his or her own group, and all of the hero scientists, uh, if we are going to not be individualistic, if we're going to then say, well, it really should be that it's a group construction or it's a social construction, but there are different groups and different groups then are going to have different constructions, then we're going to get away from encouraging individuals to think for themselves on scientific matters and to challenge the status quo rather than to seek some sort of group consensus. And uh, uh, you can see in some cases, mathematics, uh, you know, there's some uh, you know, debates over whether two plus two equals four, right? Uh, and then all of the, uh, uh, the arguments, right, about physics, whether physics is simply, you know, a, a, a white male construction, so it's uh, given a racist interpretation, or it's given a, a sexist interpretation, or if, you know, the fact that most of uh, the, the great science in the last two centuries was done in Europe, that way it's just a Eurocentric way of looking at things. So, but what all of those have in common is that we're not looking at data. We're not trying to do the math very well. We're not trying to say, here are the experiments that all of us should be able to do to, to decide. Instead, we are getting away from any of sort of objectivity and just saying, the important thing is, what group are you? Are you a male or a female, right? Are you a, a, a white person, a brown person, or a, or a black person, right? Or what is your ethnic background? Are you of African ancestry or are you of European ancestry? So those arguments are there. The debates are being joined in the scientific journals, but it's, uh, it's still early days yet. My hope there, though, is that uh, scientists have been uh, <laughs> inoculated by the, by the Enlightenment and uh, a kind of rigorous commitment to scientific method in a healthy sense is part of the culture there. Plus also, I think the scientists uh, will, of, of this generation, be able to look back on the last two generations and see how the battles went in the humanities and in some of the social sciences, and so get themselves up the learning curve more quickly about the, the dangers of what they're dealing with. So I found both of those two previous answers really fascinating because I actually, my previous degree was actually in English literature and I'm now doing anatomy and I can, I've seen all of this sort of behavior reflecting through a lot mm. of the students that I used to study with. Um, so um, I've got an anonymous person here who's just asking, couldn't we argue that postmodernism is simply the consequences of our society moving forward? and adapting to these fast changing times, which is interesting mm -hmm. because at least in my very, very small experience being in higher education, I have seen attitudes shift quite dramatically in the last five to 10 years. Yeah, um, 
No, that, that's a good question. And you know, what's interesting, though, about it is uh, if you look at the, the history of that phrase, that we need to be adapting to fast moving times, uh, that's now a 500 year old phrase. And every generation has remarked on, wow, things are changing so fast. And uh, it's now an important cultural trait to be adaptable to change. So what I would say is uh, that's an attractive phrase, and I think it's a true phrase, but it's not a postmodern phrase. It's a modernist phrase, uh, and that's been a core modern theme. The world is changing. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a huge amount of stuff out there to discover, and uh, it's particularly we as individuals, we can't assume that everything is going to just be given to us or that the way things are now are going to be the way things are in 20 years. And so uh, we will say, you know, in the business world, just to take one microcosm, right now we don't even know what careers we're supposed to be training students for because uh, everything is training so fast. So that uh, means we educators need to think about uh, adaptability and flexibility and being willing to change your mind, right, and so forth. So that's the, that's the first gloss. And what makes that a modernist uh, thing is that, you know, 500 years ago, the idea of evolution, not just biological evolution, but evolution in, in general, was taken as something bad, as something to be resisted. And there the top value was unchanging absolutes. And the idea that we should be changing and evolving is, uh, if not sacrilegious, false to, false to the order, order of things. Uh, and that instead of being flexible and giving people freedom to experiment and adapt and so forth, uh, the idea was uh, that you should be obedient and you should be following right to right authority. So uh, it is true that at the same time, uh, uh, postmodernists also do use the language of ev evolution and, and change right, and flexibility, but they use it in a much more skeptical and then relativized way uh, than, than, than the modernists do. So what they will then say is, you know, it's not simply the case that there were a lot of false beliefs that somehow got uh, entrenched in our cultures uh, you know, way back in time, and that we now need to be flexible and open to changing our ideas uh, because many of them turn out to be false or they turn out to have kind of kernels of truth, but they need to be put in a different context and reframed, right, and, and updated and adapted and so on. And all of that then is the, is the modernist uh, project. What the postmoderns do is something more radical. They will say, since so many truths or so-called truths from the past were shown to be false, and we're doing so many things so differently, what that shows is that there is no such thing as truth or that we should never say that we know what, uh, what really is going on. So they want to then say uh, evolution and change and flexibility has no, no limits. Right? And, and, and that uh, even the idea that everything is evolving is too general a claim because I'm making a universalistic claim right, and so forth. Uh, and so I'll just leave it at that for now. Thank, thank you, Stephen. That was very, very interesting about uh, you talk. You alluded to uh, the the problem of um, truths and truths as a plur plurality. Uh, 
do you believe that there is such thing as the truth as a, as a as a singular thing or is it a is it a multitude of 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 the truths as in your truth my truth that type of thing and yeah. um, because that's a that's a type of phrase that we're seeing more and more of um, in in modern times or postmodern yeah. times perhaps <laughs> right no that, that that's a great question in a way it's 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 the core question in epistemology truth is one of the success concepts in cognition, right? It's like the gold standard that we are striving for. Uh, and what we would need to do though, is spend some time talking about other success concepts like knowledge, objectivity, fact, truth, right? And so forth in, in the mix, because all of them are picking out different moments in what we take to be an overall healthy or successful cognitive, cognitive process. Uh, so truth is is uh, is particularly tricky in a number of ways. In one sense, you know, the truth is is simple. There is lots and lots of truth, and all of us do believe true things. So you know, I believe that right now my my truck is parked in my garage, and there's a fact of the matter, and uh, you know, about where my truck is right now. There is a belief in my mind right now, and there is a relationship between that. And uh, most of the time, most of our beliefs are in fact true. Now where truth gets tricky is when we flag the issue of truth. So then I will say, well, how Stephen, how do you in fact know objectively or what makes you justified? And I'm starting to pile in some other success concepts from epistemology. Uh, how do you know that it's true that your truck is in the garage right now? Now, it might be a true belief, but how do I justify that belief? Then what I need to do is come up with a theory of epistemology and cognition. I need to say something about observation. I need to say something about memory. I need to say something about concept formation. What does garage, truck, me, location, what do all of these concepts mean? And I need to have some principles about uh, uh, being able to say, when I have attended to my cognitive processes sufficiently, explicitly, to be able to make some sort of robust truth claim. And all of that's already pretty complicated when I'm talking about a, a simple case like, you know, do I know that it's true that my truck is parked in the garage right now? So uh, at one level, truth is simple, uh, but at another level, it starts to become very complex to the extent that we need to have an explicit cognition theory. Now, what also makes it complicated is that, uh, at least to, to my knowledge, the human brain and human cognition is the most complicated thing possible out there for us to try to figure out. And we are still in the early days of psychology as a science, neuroscience as a, psych as, as a science. So what I would say is uh, that the epistemologists need to be working better right, with the linguists, with the, uh, the brain scientists, with the psychologists in order to develop all of these concepts. Uh, but just as you know, physics and chemistry and biology all were extraordinarily controversial and complicated in their generations and continue to be so, we should recognize that, uh, 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 that it is an ongoing project. And what the postmoderns, though, are doing is saying, well, you know, we've looked at six or seven important theories, they didn't work out, so therefore we're just going to stop trying anymore and abandon the idea of truth right? What's, uh, whatsoever. 
Now that's just one uh, quick overview of the territory. Um, the other thing I would I would say uh, um, is <clears throat> let me uh, let me rephrase this: that truth is also it's a relational concept. And one subtlety that I would like uh, this goes to your point about whether truth is universal or not. And I want to say. In some ways, truth is universal, but in other ways, truth is not universal. So, for example, uh, truth is a relational concept. We're talking about what's going on in our minds in relation to reality, the world, facts, and so forth. And uh, to say that something is true is to assert a positive relationship between the contents of someone's consciousness and reality. And I think an additional thing that has to be immediately put in is to say that minds are individuals. So what's going on in my mind and what's going on in your mind are different things. And so we're already talking about an individual's mind in relationship to reality. So in one sense, uh, I want to say truth is not going to be universal. So if I say right now, uh, I know that it's true that my truck is parked in my garage right now. But you, Ian, or you, Cat, do not know that it's true that my truck is parked in my garage right now. So it's true for me, but it's not true for you. And the reason is that you're not in a position to go through any sort of chain of evidence to make up your own mind about the truth or falsehood of that proposition. So properly about the truth claim about where my truck is, you two should be agnostic. And that's the correct objective position for you right now. Whereas I can say, no, it's absolutely true that my truck is parked in the garage right now. At the same time, uh, part of truth is to talk about the facts of the world. And the fact of the world is that my truck is in the garage. Take that as <laughs> for granted right now. And so it is going to be a universal truth. Now, if you guys got on the plane and came and checked for yourself, it would be true for you individually. If everybody in the world came and checked, they would all reach the same conclusion. So the territory is complicated, but the postmoderns want to say it's too complicated. We tried, we failed. We're just going to go and play some other language games right now and try to abandon all of these success concepts. And I think that's unduly pessimistic. That was quite an interesting one. I do like the idea of um, the agnostic approach to whether there's a truck in the garage. I, I do like that one. <laughs> right. um, so I've got quite an interesting one from one of our um, attendees, and it's quite a thought-provoking one. And they're asking, do you not think that postmodernism makes a legitimate point? It's undeniable, in their opinion, of course, that men are generally more privileged than women, white people more privileged than black people, etc. So what is your take on that? Um, well, I would say, uh, just take privilege, which is a, a complicated concept, but suppose we just take it, right, take it generically. Uh, that assertion is not a postmodernist assertion. I mean, some postmodernists make it. That is a modernist assertion. Right? To say that we in the early modern world inherited a culture, and it's not just Western Europe, it's the whole world, right? For thousands and thousands and thousands of years that said men are superior to women and men should then socially be in positions of hierarchy with respect to women, just to focus on that particular issue. Uh, 
That's everybody all around the world uh, uh, for tens of thousands of years. The modernists are precisely the very first people to say that's wrong. Women are individuals. Women have their own lives. Women have their own minds. Women have their own dreams. Women are fully capable of self-responsibility. And women, therefore, should be equally free to pursue their lives. That's what you start to see in the Renaissance. You start to see it more explicitly in the 1700s. The very first, uh, quote unquote, feminist uh, publications in the 1780s and 90s. So this is a modernist assertion that old fashioned sexism is wrong. But also note that the, 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 uh, the modernist claim is that women are individuals with fully competent minds, just as men are, and that this is a universal claim. Right? And it's an individualistic universal claim. And so on the basis of that, for now three centuries, we have been pushing back against second or third class status of women, right? Uh, uh, full political uh, uh, liberties, full political rights, uh, rights to get uh, education, to open a bank account in your own name, to sign contracts in your own name, right? And so forth. So all of those privileges that were baked into culture for tens of thousands of years, it's precisely the moderns who have been uh, at the forefront of attacking traditional sexism. Now, again, what I would want to say is that the postmoderns are taking uh, a grain of that, right, and perverting it, because then what they are doing is arguing that women are not primarily individuals. They want to then go to a group analysis, right, that women should see themselves as members of various groups, that it's the male gender and the female gender, and you stop looking at women as, as individuals. Also, part of the modernist claim was that <clears throat> uh, uh, men and women in their relationships should be harmonious, right, that it's actually not only an injustice to women to keep them as second and third class citizens, but it's an injustice to men and they appealed to men's better natures to say, look, men, what kind of relations do you want to have with women? Do you want to have relationships with stupid, ignorant women who don't know anything about the world, who don't have a sense of their own mind? Or do you want to have relationships, the best kind of romantic, sexual, and the life partner relationships with strong, independent women who know their own mind and are doing something interesting with their lives? And virtually all modernist men signed on pretty quickly. No, 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 I want that second group, group of women. And the idea though is that that's going to be what's best for men and for women. And that's going to make them have the best relationships when they come, when they come together. But what the postmoderns again are doing is subverting that element as well and saying not only are men and women not individuals who should be free, it's some sort of group egalitarian notion, but also to put them in conflict with each other. And so precisely postmodern feminist is exactly opposed to liberal or individualistic or modernistic feminism in saying, you know, men and women are in antagonistic group conflict with each other. And that's just the way it's going to be. And then on top of that, a very jaded and cynical understanding. Sure, some men will talk to talk about you know, being nice to women and, and, and wanting to respect their rights and so forth. But that's really just a mask for an underlying cynical power play. And once you start going down that road, that is the distinctively postmodern take on 
privilege and male-female relations. So, uh, of course, we could tell the same story about racial issues and ethnic issues and so on, but I'll just use the, the gendered one as, as the working example. So, excellent stuff, uh, Stephen. Um, what I would like to ask you about is, was a question we were thinking about last night, what we were going to ask you. Uh, well, in reading your book, uh, you, you, you said that uh, postmodernists are monolithically of the far left, um, like the, the, the main uh, architects, if you like, of the postmodern movement, uh, mm -hmm. Foucault, Derrida, uh, Lyotard, Rorty, etc. Um, since they, since you stated that that they are all of the far left in thinking, um, would you associate postmodernism with a particular ideology or particular, um, you know, attraction to a, a certain group of politics? Yeah, well, I think as a, a matter of intellectual history, uh, the, the the summary part that you're giving there is is absolutely correct. Uh, in the 50s, when uh, the gentlemen you 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 raised some of them not so gentle actually <laughs> uh, were, were were coming to intellectual prominence and on in the 1960s and into the 1970s, yeah, postmodernism was monolithically uh, a left wing, very far left wing uh, group. Now it, it has evolved to, to some extent. Uh, the, the, the left is already a big tent with many competing groups within it, and some of them uh, are, are, are bitter enemies on some sub-issues as well. Uh, so what has happened is that those themes have continued to evolve and mutate, sometimes in intellectual form, sometimes in psychological form, and sometimes in, uh, in social, social manifestation. So I don't think it's true right now to say that everyone who signs on broadly speaking to the postmodern package of ideas, whatever you take those to be, are as monolithically left-wing as they were a generation ago. And what has started to happen is that other groups with a political agenda or with an ideological outlook have started in reactive form to see, oh, these are the new, uh, the, new, uh, the, the, the new ways that we are doing politics and ideological battles right now. And these postmodern weapons of cynicism, of skepticism, of using ad hominem tactics and undercutting people's narratives and so forth do seem rhetorically to be very effective. And so what we are going to then start doing is using those, but on behalf of our different politics and, uh, and, and our different ideologies. So uh, both within the elements of the far left that were first attracted to postmodernism, there has been evolution. And at the same time, there have been other groups who've adopted significant elements of the postmodern package and apply it to their own political agendas. So um, we've had two questions that are actually about democracy and postmodernism. So um, do you believe that postmodernism is potentially creating any kind of lobbying with current politics, for example, um, interfering in how our democracy works? And do you think that with the rise of postmodernism, there's been a decrease in the quality of our democracies at all? I think, yeah, definitely. And I think that's for strong philosophical reasons. 
if you think about the assumptions of democracy, they all are uh, individualistic. So the idea, you know, if you take standard democracy, every citizen is going to have a vote. And each of those votes, so you're free to vote and uh, you are uh, uh, equal. You know, no, no person's vote counts for more than others. So you know, even if Einstein was you know, 2.7 times as intelligent as I am, he was a genius and I'm just pretty smart. It doesn't mean that in the democracy he gets, you know, his vote gets weighted 2.7 and mine just gets weighted, weighted for one. Uh, so it's individuals, uh, it's, it's free to enter into the process, to state your piece, to run for office and to vote. So it's individualistic in that sense. Um, <clears throat> and it's also based on reason in the sense that what we're going to do is say, here are all of the political issues. And what we are supposed to do as citizens is think about those issues and look at the data and have these ongoing discussions with our family members and friends and at work, and, and then more formally in, uh, in newspapers and other media outlets. We're supposed to think and argue about all of these arguments. And we're supposed to be open to changing our minds if new evidence comes along. And if I realize that someone, oh, in fact, has a, has a better argument than I did, or I made a mistake about something or other. So all of that is very optimistically pro-reason, and it inheres in the individual, and it's a freedom-oriented uh, way of doing politics. And what postmodernism is doing explicitly on all of those philosophical principles is saying reason is impotent. Human beings are not rational. Right? What we call our reason is just constructed by these various group dynamics, and there's no such thing as objectivity, truth, right, and so forth. So reason really should not be that fundamentally operative, or we're not going to think of our political processes in terms of, of reason. So that one goes out. They're also not thinking in terms of individuals, that the importance is individual freedom of entry into the process and argumentation, right, and so forth. That is out. Instead, they are replacing it with a non-rational and in some cases overtly anti-rational conflict between groups that's not going to be solved peacefully at the ballot box. Rather, it is uh, everything is oppression, everything is exploitation, and what we're going to do is rip off the mask and show the underlying exploitation and oppression and just enter into that violent mess on behalf of our preferred groups. So absolutely, postmodernism philosophically is a threat to democracy, and we see that playing out in this generation. That's uh, quite worrying um, stuff there, Stephen, particularly when you talk about the quality of democracy. I, 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 have, I suppose I have a two-part question here. Um, the would be a follow-up to this, what you've just said in regards to uh, democracy. What would you say that we could do collectively perhaps, or as a society to improve that type of outcomes? How do we ameliorate such issues? Uh, I also have another question if I could squeeze it in um, for, on behalf of an anonymous attendee uh, who asks, uh, who can they read? Who are the best philosophers to read on the issues of postmodernism? Uh, mm. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, okay, good. So the, the, the first part of that question <clears throat> is uh, what, what we can do. I would say you know, the most important thing is for each of us as individuals to, uh, you know, to take stock of ourselves, 
You know, so life is hard, life is complicated. We're all going to have disagreements about lots and lots of things. So take all of that as, as a given. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, make sure that you are developing yourself as an individual into the kind of person who can take on life's challenges, including all of the cognitive challenges and the debates with postmoderns and, 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 and uh, individuals from other, other perspectives. So don't worry about, for, for example, saving the world too much. First, focus on getting good with yourself, uh, having confidence in your own mind, in your own capacities to organize your own life and uh, get clear what your life values are right, and so forth. So I think if you are fundamentally healthy on all of those things, that will serve you well uh, in the vicissitudes of life, uh, including social life that are going, going to face you, but also you will then be the kind of person who other people will look to. So you know, in the face of all of the irrationality and hostility and blatant unfairness that you're going to confront, you know, we see it all over the place in social media, if you are a voice of reason, and a decent and civil person, even people who disagree with you will recognize your character for what it is. And you will have many uh, social allies who may be quieter, but not are nonetheless allies who will nod along, learn from what you have to say, and then be more empowered to themselves, be healthy, civilized people and, 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 and so forth. So um, that's general. The other thing I would say is, Whatever area of expertise you are planning to go in, if you're planning to go become an entrepreneur and start your own business, or you're planning to become a scientist and you're, you know, you'll be running a lab uh, uh, you know, with uh, 30 people working under you in, in 10 years, or, or if you're planning to run for political office, uh, make sure that you become very good at your discipline, uh, that you know it inside out. Uh, and that you, uh, uh, you, you pay attention, so to speak, to the ecosystem right within that discipline. Uh, and then uh, again, rather than thinking of trying to save society as a whole, work on making your area of specialty uh, as healthy as it, possibly, as it possibly can be. One of the reasons why I think we're having the, the, the generational problems we are right now with postmoderns you know, and all of the postmodern arguments, I'm not saying ignore them or denying them. These are all arguments that we all need to think about and, 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 and deal with. But uh, postmodernism has to a large extent grown up in a vacuum where you know, the, the, the smart people and the very uh, uh, ambitious and focused people inside the university typically just want to focus on their thing and do only their thing. And their attitude is... Uh, don't ask me to do committee work. Don't ask me to pay attention to all these broader governance issues. I just want to, to focus on my thing. And that then has meant that there's been a vacuum for people who are more careerist and who are more politi politically minded within the university to, to have a lot more power. And frankly, a lot of times it's second and third rate people, right? the people who know that they're not going to be active minded researchers or write the next great novel or figure out and write some great book or other. They know that they don't have it in that, but nonetheless, they want to have some sort of career. And so going into university administration, it's not to say that there aren't some very talented people for whom that's their calling, but the, uh, the, the average is much lower there and it tends to attract a second and third tier group of people 
and it's easier for postmodern ideas to be attractive to those sorts of people. Um, uh, whom to read? Um, that's that's a that's a, a good question. Uh, what I would say is um, I have at my website because uh, I'm asked this question rather frequently is to say, you know, read about the, the postmodern philosophers. Of course, I'm going to recommend my book, but uh, there are lots of other good people uh, who are now uh, taking up a lot of the philosophical issues that the postmoderns uh, raise. Uh, and so what you would just have to do, I think, is just poke around in the literature on the particular issues that you are interested in. Are you interested in cognition issues? Are you uh, an epistemology? Are you interested in, uh, uh, in human nature issues or metaethical issues and, and so forth? Uh, there's a lot of good work, I think, being done there. But what I, uh, I have at my website is a, is, a, is, a, is a post that is four books that I would recommend that people read that are not in philosophy, but are in uh, literature, in historiography, in, uh, in law, and in the sciences. Uh, and what's good about those, at least in my judgment, is that these are people who are at the top of their game, literature professors, law professors, philosophers, historians, and practicing scientists, and so forth, uh, taking up explicitly the postmodern arguments in their discipline. So John Ellis's Literature Lost, I recommend that one. Uh, Keith Windshuttle, the, the Killing of History, I recommend that one. Uh, I think it's uh, Daniel Farber and Suzanne Sherry. Uh, it's, it's a book on law, and they're mounting a very good analysis in response to critical legal theory. And then uh, actually one of my former dissertation advisors, Noretta Kurtke, uh, she actually got her PhD in Great Britain, studying with Karl Popper, has a very good collection of essays by biologists and physicists and mathematicians and historians of science, taking up all of the postmodern uh, assaults on, on the sciences. Uh, I think it's called A House Built Upon Sand, something like that. So if you just you know, go to my website, uh, the post is there. Uh, that would be the first four things I would recommend. So this will be our second last question, but it will relate to the last question as well. Okay. So do you think there are untouchable issues at all? So, for example, we've seen, at least in the UK, there's increasingly more and more people who are arguing that certain cartoons that depict religious figures shouldn't be published because they could be offensive. Do yes. you believe that postmodernism has helped create this idea of there being untouchable issues? Mm. Well, I don't think that uh, that idea comes from postmodernism per se, because uh, postmodernism is, you know, you know, to take its one of its leading labels, deconstruction. The idea is, of, of deconstruction is you know, universalistically ambitious to say that everything should be subject to attack and deconstruction. So, you're never going to get uh, the idea that there are absolute untouchable issues out of that postmodern approach. Instead, I think it's a second or third generation uh, uh, response that postmodernism lays the groundwork for. I think what happens is 
that people will buy into postmodernism to a certain extent to say, oh, there is no truth, there is no objectivity, nobody really knows what's good, right, wrong, right, and so forth. Instead, we all just have our subjective preferences and they're all conditioned into us, into our groups, and all of these groups are in, in bitter, nasty conflict with each other. So if you buy into all of that, then for a while you become kind of a postmodern nihilist, right? There's, there's nothing sacred. But I think that's an unstable position for the vast majority of people psychologically. Nobody can get through their life believing that everything is empty, valueless, meaningless, and so forth. People want to believe in something. They want to be committed to something. They want to make the world a better place. So typically what they will do, though, is then say, my belief system, whatever it happens to be, I'm just going to make uh, a commitment to it, but a full hearted commitment to it and take it as a set of absolutes and then enter into the social warfare on behalf of my group and use any tactics, fair or foul, in order to advance my group. Now, then censorship makes sense because if you can use tools of censorship to get other groups to shut up in attacking or critiquing or making fun of your group, then that's a very good tool. And so you end up with a new fashion form of censorship that uh, that postmodernism is, is paving the way for. Now, what I would say, though, is uh, you know, on this issue of, of untouchables, that there, there are no untouchables. Right? Every position, every belief, every value, all of us as individuals have a, have a, a responsibility to ourselves to think about all of the important issues and not to say other people at previous times in the past, have thought all of this through, and I'm just going to piggyback on what they do or just follow along in conformist fashion. So in principle, nothing should be untouchable. And I think precisely anything that in any generation that is controversial, uh, that is precisely an issue that should be put on the table and that we should look at carefully uh, rather than trying to put it under the table or take it off of, off of the curriculum. Now, all of that said, that then is to say that politically, our default position should be examine everything, and we should all have the freedom to examine everything. Now, there still, though, is an issue about uh, sociability, that uh, uh, even if um, I am free to attack and disbelieve various things, another question, though, is about being a civilized human being in a society about which people have very different beliefs and very different values and knowing that some people are more touchy about some things right, other than, than, than others. And so how we are going to have that discussion about all of the controversial issues is not decided only politically. Uh, if we don't want the politicians to tell us, this is what you're allowed to believe and this is what we're allowed to say, if we're going to be self-responsible and self-regulating, and that means that we ourselves need to decide what it is to be a civilized human being talking about controversial and touchy issues. And there, I think the concept of tolerance is absolutely important. Right? On the one hand, I have to know that other people are going to think my belief system is false, that it's stupid, that it's dangerous, that it's wicked, right, and so forth. And so I can't uh, that's just part of the effort. I'm going to have to develop a thick skin going into society, knowing that that's going to be some reaction of some people. And some of them are going to try to make fun of me. So part of it is I'm going to have to tolerate 
attacks on my belief system, even the ones that I think are are vicious and unfair. That's just part of the part of the game I'm playing. But at the same time, uh, uh, I'm going to have to develop a certain sense of initial benevolence with respect to other belief systems and a sensitivity to other people and recognize that if I want to uh, make progress toward what's genuinely true and beautiful, if I am just you know, leading from the gate with insults and attack and mockery and so forth, that's not the way a civilized person uh, in, in, enters into society. So there is a proper place for uh, benevolence. And uh, even if you privately think that some positions are ridiculous or stupid or, or, or even dangerous, not wearing that fully on your sleeve uh, and, and, and saying things diplomatically in the appropriate context. Now, where I do think, though, that the stakes get higher is you know, if it is a, an issue of controversy and you think it's wrong and it is overtly dangerous, uh, then you become less and less civil and you become much more outspoken about it. And I do think uh, mockery and all of the tools that the comedians use should be in the arsenal, but they should be reserved for those extremely dangerous cases. A massive thanks to you, uh, Dr. Hicks, for um, for joining us. And that brings us actually to the last question, unfortunately. Uh, um, so yeah, our as, as fast. part of the, it certainly is. Um, so the the a question that we always ask everybody as the free speech society, uh, we ask every speaker, why does free speech matter to you? Mm. Well, <clears throat> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, my, my my first answer is kind of as a philosopher, so I'm, I'm wearing my my professional hat on. You know, I Perfect. love I love philosophy, right? All of all of the the great and fascinating issues that we're still working on. And when I read the uh, the greats in philosophy, you know, Aristotle and Nietzsche and Ayn Rand and all of the other ones. Uh, I, I'm in awe of the, the power of their minds and their ability to put uh, controversial issues out on the table fearlessly to, to, take, to take a stance on them, to take the heat themselves, right, and so forth. So uh, I see uh, free speech and the whole network of principles around free speech as core to my professional discipline. Uh, so it's, it's, in, it's, in my, it's in my being. Uh, so I think if we're genuinely interested in truth, if we're interested in, in what's good, the only way we are going to get there is by encouraging the smartest and the most courageous people to put it all on the line on all of the issues. And let's have great, huge, and in some cases, hard debates about absolutely everything. And let the best arguments prevail. And so, free speech is, is an essential right, to my discipline. But then, more more broadly, uh, and and here I go just as as a human being, uh, and I think this is true true of all of us. We all uh, need and and want and hopefully are ambitious to live the best life that we possibly can. And uh, that means that we all, as individuals, need to have that the free space in our own minds. To, uh, to think about everything in life, all of its possibilities, and decide for ourselves what we think is the truth, right, or, or the best. 
And a lot of uh, what's valuable and important in life is our social relationships with our family members, with our, with our lovers and marriage partners, in our careers and business and so forth. And if you think, uh, just to, to talk about intimate relationships, for example, the only way that those relationships can be as beautiful and fulfilling as they can be is if there's complete openness. And we, we all talk about honesty and trust and communication as the foundation of a healthy relationship. And we all know at that intimate level, as soon as one person starts playing power games and starts saying, oh, there's certain things we can't talk about, or I'm not going to let you talk, uh, think certain position, or you're a bad person just because you take certain view, that sabotages the entire relationship and, and you're not going to achieve it. So free speech in intimate relationships, but also in professional relationships and so on. So just generalizing on that, uh, life requires that we all think for ourselves, be free to act to ourselves, and then in social context, be able to speak our minds and that other people are able to speak our minds. So it's, uh, it's built into the human condition as a core value. Unfortunately, that'll be all that we have time for today, but mm. it has been an absolute pleasure having you here, Stephen Hicks. It is Well, been thanks for that, Kat. Yeah, really good questions too. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much to everybody who's been asking questions. We've had some absolutely fantastic ones and it's just been a really fascinating hour and a bit of just just learning so much more. And just to let everybody else know who's watching, our next event coming up will be on Friday, the 2nd of April. So that is Friday coming up at 7pm UK time, and we will be discussing Scotland's new hate crime bill with Jade Kulatakis, who is a lawyer. So that is going to be a very interesting one as well, since Scotland's hate crime bill has been getting quite a lot of flack from quite a lot of us here, and it's fantastic to be able to discuss that. So thank you once again to everybody who came along. And thank you so much again, Stephen Hicks. That was illuminating, a phenomenal talk. Uh, wishing you all the well, and thank you. That's us. All right. A pleasure. All the best for your society. Thank you very much.